Welcome to the Voice of Family Business on Capitol Hill. It's great to have you with us. With each podcast from Family Enterprise USA, we bring you the latest news, expert opinions, and insights affecting the country's largest employer, the American family business. If you like this series, please remember to subscribe and sign up for the alerts as future shows are posted wherever you download your podcasts. In this episode, we bring you a lively and in-depth discussion with our host, Pat Soldano, and her guests, Jack Kingston, former Republican member of the House of Representatives from Georgia, and now a principal with the law firm Squire Patton Boggs, and Mark Begich, former Democratic Senator from Alaska, former mayor of Anchorage, and now a strategic consulting advisor with the law firm Brownstein. Both are based in Washington, D.C. They will address the state of candidates, their policies, and their impact on family businesses in America. Now, let's listen in on what these experts have to say about the 2024 presidential election cycle. So welcome to today's podcast. I am Pat Soldano, president of Family Enterprise USA and president of Policy and Taxation Group. If you don't know who we are, we advocate for generationally owned family businesses and their lifetime of savings, all sizes of businesses and all industries. Today, we're going to have an in-depth and fast approaching conversation about the 2024 elections, what policies we need to watch out for and how the current or new administration or new legislators will affect family businesses around the country. I have with me today two men that are about as plugged in as anyone can be about the election scene. I am here with Congressman Jack Kingston, Republican member of the House of Representatives from Georgia, and now a principal with the law firm of Squire Patton Boggs. And I'm also here with Mark Begich, former Democrat Senator from Alaska, former mayor of Anchorage, and now a strategic consulting advisor with the Brownstein Law Firm. Both are based in Washington, D.C. I really appreciate both of you joining for the call today and all that you're going to tell us about. Pat, it's great to be with you. And I'm not sure how much we can tell you, but um, it's great to be with Mark Baggett. He's a great member of the Senate and a great elected official from Anchorage back in the day. But I think as much as anything, his name is synonymous with Alaska politics. So it's a great honor to be on the program with him. Well, I'm looking forward to it, Jack, as you, we know that Every day in politics is different. Even when we're out of politics, uh, we see lots of stuff happening and changing. So it's great to be here with you. An honor to know what service you have done over the years. And uh, looking forward to this. This is a great opportunity. Well, Lord knows, I think Washington would need people, perhaps like us, who, I don't know, I don't want to sound like a has-been on the way. We would have done it. But at the same time, I know you and I never were hesitant to reach across the aisle and Try to get something done. I know we're going to go into some questions, but Jack, I'll tell you, if there's any time now that's needed to have that kind of conversation is today in Congress. I mean, on both sides of the aisle, both houses, there's just such a dysfunctional components going on now because people are not sitting down and crossing the aisle and saying, hey, what's good for the country? It may not be 100%, but we got to figure out these problems because the American people want it done. That is so great to hear from both of you because we truly believe that as bipartisan organization, it's so, so very important that both sides work together. So um, this is an excellent way to start this conversation. But let's start with something a little more difficult to talk about, and that is maybe the presidential election. 
So right now, it appears that the two candidates will be uh, former President Trump and now President Biden. The polls seem to say that Trump has a lead over Biden, but maybe that's going to be shifting in the months ahead. So what do you see as uh, the lay of the land going forward? Um, I'll jump in first, if you like. I, you're right. The, the shifting of the land you know, in politics every week is a lifetime uh, when you think about it. And we got a lot of lifetimes before November. And, you know, the primary on the Republican side, I'll let Jack talk more about that. But, uh, you know, that's going to shape out here or shake out here in short order. But I agree with you that I think it's going to be Trump and Biden. Those are the two that are obviously rising to the top. I also think that, you know, there's a lag occurring with uh, President Biden in the sense that the economy, he's getting no credit for that. The economy is better than it was a few years ago. No question about that. But he's not getting the credit like most presidents would have gotten. I think the immigration activity that occurred in the last few weeks, or last, really last week and a half or so, but last few weeks, um, that can play either way. Because it's been two times now in the last decade and a half that there's been bipartisan immigration bills moving forward, and they've died at the last minute at the hands, in this case, this last time, at the hands of really uh, Republican and Trump component of the activity. Now, saying all of that, debt can change rapidly. People are agitated with both parties right now, and they're not overjoyed. And I would say not the partisans deep on the Democratic side or the Republican side, but that middle group, the people that if you want to win, you got to win them over are not enthusiastic about either candidate right now. And that's a tough nut uh, to crack because you know, Nevada was a great example, even though Trump wasn't on the ballot on this primary that just started talking about it. None of the above was the top vote getter. <laughs> that's that's kind of like, that's a bad sign for any politician. Now, again, Trump wasn't on there. He would have got a chunk of those. But just knowing people are voting for none of the above. I agree. I, I think that there is a kind of a disgust with Washington in general. Um, although I'm going to point out, Pat, that Washington is a reflection of the electorate. And the electorate are sending um, the 535 members of Congress to Washington and the president. So, you know, sometimes it's easy to point fingers at Washington. But the other thing is, well, what offices have you run for? What campaigns have you been involved with? How much did you contribute to get your candidate in? And, um, you know, I'm, I'm going off on a little different direction just for the moment, then I'll get back to your question. But um, look at college football coaches, particularly, Mark, as you can appreciate in the SEC, I'm from Athens, Georgia. We fired Mark Rick for a 9-4 season at the University of Georgia. That's how our intolerance for bad performances. But when it comes to Congress, the American people are fine. Don't, you know, it's the other guy's fault. Um, we let members of Congress come home all the time and explain why something couldn't get done, but they were the innocent party and they were trying to get things changed. So I, I do think there is this uh, enigma in America right now that we have got to expect and demand more out of our elected officials. Somebody had told me once they're like uh, children's diapers. They should be changed uh, regularly. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. That guess it's there. But, you know, I, I agree with Mark in terms of these polls, Pat. They are fluid. Mm -hmm. And whoever's number one this week might not be next week. 
Um, uh, from a Republican standpoint, I'd say that the issues that Donald Trump is championing, particularly the border, which is uh, the number one and number two issue right now, uh, it bounces back and forth with the economy. But Donald Trump has a, a, a much stronger support for that. But if Joe Biden solves Ukraine or solves Israel, um, that's going to be a real big push, um, a real big bump in the polling for him. I don't know that the border issue will ever work in his favor with that bill passing or not passing in a particular area, but our particular Congress with whatever the version of it is. But, you know, people can dart like fish in a different direction if a candidate has one slip. And we see that over and over again. I have to ask, how do you see a third party candidate playing into this? You both talked about Biden and Trump. But, you know, as you know, No Labels has been out there touting a third party candidate, uh, what's your reaction to, is that even viable? And if so, what's the effect on the election? It's a great question. You, you've seen some presidential elections where the third party candidate does pull from one side or the other. This one's a little unusual. You, know, you got a Kennedy running, and yet when you look at the data, it's a mixed bag. Because of his positions, in an interesting way, he pulls from Trump, but because the Kennedy name and brand, I would call it, he pulls from Biden. So it's kind of this weird mix with him. Now, saying all that, I think at the end of the day, people, and, and I agree that the, there's a core of Trump voters who are very motivated, no matter what. They're going to vote for him no matter what. On the Biden side, that core voter is limited, but it's there, but it's not as enthusiastic. But at the end of the day, if people think a third party, I believe this, the third party candidate could impact Biden winning and the person who's voting for that third party candidate just kind of upset at everyone, I would put money on it if they're inclined to vote for Biden, but they're going to pick a third party candidate and Trump is the nominee. The fear of Trump by some of these folks will be greater than the opportunity to vote for somebody. In other words, I think they will move to the Biden category at the last minute. But a third party candidate in a race like this in a state that might be 30,000 vote differential can make a difference. I mean, we saw it in Florida years ago uh, with Ralph Nader. So you, you don't know. That can change, you know, because you got people who are voting protest votes now and they just kind of box on all of them, you know. So it could have an impact. I don't know if no labels will pick up this, you know, find the candidate they're looking for. Uh, and some of their donors are getting a little agitated because they wanted to be a nonpartisan, you know, position. And now they're getting into campaigns and there's some aggravation within that group right now. Mark is right. If, if you look at what a Ralph Nader did, he, he did have an impact. Ross Perot had an impact. And you could certainly argue that most of the Ross Perot voters were traditional Republicans and they helped elect Bill Clinton uh, in Georgia. In the Senate race, or well, excuse me, in the presidential race, um, 65,000 people did not vote for the Republican or the Democrat candidate. In Wisconsin, it was about 20,000. In Arizona, I can't remember the number, 30 to 40,000. Those are significant numbers, and those are the numbers that could have given somebody else a margin of victory. Doesn't necessarily mean that all go Republican or that all go Democrat or even 50-50. 
Um, but I know, for example, my nephew in Colorado was one of them. And he was, he said, I would not have voted for either candidate if all, you know, if I could not have uh, chosen something. But Pat, the problem with no labels and the problem with third party candidates is they're a short lived movement. You really have to have long-term um, commitment to build the infrastructure. The problem that Kennedy's going to have is getting on the ballots. And if his names aren't on the ballot, he's not really viable. You know, for all the faults of the Republican and the Democrat Party, they do have the infrastructure to get somebody on the ballot or to keep somebody off the ballot, as we saw in New Hampshire with the Democrats. Right. Yeah, and I just add one more thing, if I could, Pat, and that is... What's interesting is these third party candidates that come out when, you know, like when you say no label, people, oh, very exciting. You know, they're going to be bipartisan. They're going to get to the middle where America is. And then when they have to take a position on an issue, yes. then the person who says, I like no labels, they say, well, wait, that's not the position I have on that issue. I'm for bipartisanship, except if it impacts me. <laughs> so. It's, it's a very interesting dynamic, and that's what a group like No Labels, I think, slipped a little bit by taking on specific issues and or candidates, like in Colorado one year they did, stuff like that. Then people go, wait, wait, that's not what I meant by supporting No Labels. And like Jack said, and I totally agree, these come and go because they don't have sustainability because the ballot issues are getting on. Every state's different, and there's it's just, some are very complicated to get on. Some cases, it's impossible. And, and I think if you had somebody who was just this beloved national hero, then maybe he or she could get there. Um, you know, a Joe Manchin or Kristen Sinema has come as close as anybody to being no labels these days. But it almost would take an Eisenhower, a kind of war hero coming back from the, the victory. Uh, but but it's they're only as good as the first vote, as Mark points out. The minute they vote on one side, they're going to alienate 30% of the electorate one way or the other. And it's probably even more like 45%. And Jack, you mentioned Eisenhower. While you were talking, I was thinking Eisenhower would be the right kind of candidate. And when you said, I said, see, that's where people want that in a third party candidate. And that does not exist. That's very, very interesting and very helpful because I know a lot of people are focused on the possibility of a third party candidate. But let's Let's shift now to the other important elections, and that's the House and the Senate. And everybody's been speculating around which party is going to take the House, which party is going to take the Senate. I'd love to hear uh, the opinions from both of you. And, Senator, we'll, we'll start with you. So I, I think the House has an edge uh, to be taken by Democrats, but not by much. And I say that because the you know, the beginning numbers of the House have been shrinking through these special elections and people retiring. There's a lot more retirements than ever before. I think there's going to be some dynamic change there. And um, their last few weeks here haven't been very positive in the sense of their ability to get some stuff done. But I do think the House has a chance to move into the Democratic column. On the Senate side, I think the Democrats are in trouble. And I think uh, anyone who thinks they got a clean sweep, no, this is probably one of the toughest years that Democrats will have in the Senate, because my belief is if the Democrats get to a 50-50, which would be their best case scenario, in my opinion, uh, and hope for a president reelect, uh, then the next two cycles are big challenges for Republicans. But I do think it's a, it's a tough road right now for Democrats in the Senate. 
Um, I'll start with the House side. I think there are 19 Republicans who represent districts that were carried by Joe Biden. In comparison, I think it's only five or six Democrats who are in Donald Trump-type seats. That um, is a factor because if Donald Trump is the head of the Republican ticket, he's the best get-out-the-vote inspiration the Democrat Party has ever had. He is, he's, he's probably... The, the intensity against Donald Trump is probably higher than the intensity for pro-choice or pro-gun type issues um, for Democrat voters. So, uh, you know, a lot of those members are going to be vulnerable. And then we have had a series of court-driven reapportionments where uh, states like Alabama have lost a seat. Uh, two Republicans are running against each other. There's a new seat, which is almost sure to go Republican, Democrats, excuse me. Um, in New York, uh, you've got a special election that regardless of how it turns out, it, it will probably go back to the Democrat Party. That was the George Santos seat. Um, Georgia, we may have reapportionment type challenges, not to the level that uh, Alabama, but New York, same sort of thing. So um, reapportionment has worked against Republicans. And then certainly the record. Uh, unfortunately, my party, we've had the speaker debacle. We, we have um, had a, a poor, uh, appropriation bills that haven't been passed yet, and there's not any really flagship legislation that members can go home and brag about. So I think the House is going to be in trouble, not to mention, Mark, I believe you guys have been out raising us, which is one of the reasons why the RNC is going to have a change in leadership. Now, in the Senate, things are, as Mark pointed out, a little brighter for Republicans. West Virginia, with the retirement of Joe Manchin, will um, all, all but certainly go Republican. That alone could change it to 50-50. So if President Biden is reelected, the Dems will still control the Senate. But if it's uh, Trump that's president, then that uh, the vice president would rule over the, the Senate or uh, be the the Senate pro tem, is that what you call it, Mark? I don't right, that's the 50, 50, yes. And uh, presiding officer, and there'll be the 51st vote, right? Yes, so yeah. so that would be significant. But um, there's three vulnerable seats in, in Ohio, uh, Montana, and West Virginia. And, you know, we're, we're fielding candidates. We have candidates and all those. And then there's some other ones that uh, a little bit more of a stretch, Pennsylvania and Arizona, for example. Um, and there, there are a couple of Republicans who aren't, you know, aren't going to have a cakewalk either. But um, the map on this year does favor Republicans. I would also say, Jack, in this, that, you know, it's more of a more recent trend line over the Senate. There's Republican caucus turmoil right now. Members yes. blatantly saying, you know, they need to get rid of their leader, McConnell. And that is, as you know, rare on the Senate side to have those conversations, you know, publicly. As you know, on the House side, it's a little different. It's a, you know, it's a little more tougher battling over there in the public. But on the Senate side, for members of the Senate Republican Caucus to actually do press events around this issue of who is going to lead them in the Senate, Puts them, you know, if I was sitting over there in the Senate advising Republicans, I'd say, keep the family quiet. But right now we got to win an election, unify, focus, three issues. Don't deviate. But they're <laughs> squabbling and that's a dangerous thing for them. I agree with you. And, and we have shown as Republicans the ability to squabble. 
within ourselves. When, when I was running for the Senate 2014, it was a nine-way primary. We'd be on stage in these debates, and they say, will you vote for Mitch McConnell? I was the only one out of nine who said yes, and that's what I lost. But that was eight years ago. And so you can imagine, almost 10 years ago now, so you can imagine how um, uh, it is today when people are coming out of the closet, as Mark says, to criticize the leader. It's, it's unprecedented. Exactly. So Senator Begich had mentioned the economy and how maybe President Biden isn't really kind of getting the credit. But as you both know, we represent family businesses around the United States, and, and they are constantly struggling with policy that affects them. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit and talk about policy issues and specifically tax economic policy that affects family businesses. We all know that there is a tax bill right now that's passed the House and it's going to the Senate, it's in the Senate. It has some things in there that are very important to family businesses like R&D expensing and bonus depreciation. But generally, Family businesses, 80% of them, as we've learned, operate as a pass-through entity. So, you know, they're an S-Corp, an LLC, or an LP. So they're paying 37% in income taxes. Corporate America is paying 21%. They're also 199A may go away. All those other things, that the things I talked about, like bonus depreciation and R&D expensing, affect them. So how do you address that with each party? So what do you think the, these candidates um, that are up and, and the existing legislators that are in office, how do you think tax policy, legislative and economic policy will look like going forward after the election? And I, as so, Senator, we'll, we'll start with you. Uh, well, there's two parts. To, I guess I first would say there's some activity before the election, then there's stuff after election, or depending on how the campaigns go, it's all after the election, right? So it depends on the makeup. So I think knowing the House has passed this piece of legislation that's kind of, you know, I call it a, a short but, you know, bipartisan tax bill out of the House or the numbers it did, I thought was pretty significant, very positive in a lot of ways. The Senate is going to carefully review that, I'm guessing, but they'll also wait until they see some of the political lay of the land. And I say that in the presidential race. Because they don't want to disrupt what they think, especially the Senate, that they think they're on the verge of taking the Senate. And so they want to be very careful. Now, saying that, I think the Democrats and actually, um, you know, the 199A and several of these things, when I was in the Senate, these are things I advocated for, this concepts, you know, because there is a disadvantage to family-owned businesses, you know, against the C-Corp. You know, they, they're going to get a better rate. Uh, some will say, well, but they got to pay it twice with the dividends and so forth. But yeah, but the big chunk of employment, job creation, uh, creating innovation, creating small businesses, local businesses is done by family businesses. And yet they pay this, you know, in my personal view, we run some family businesses, pay a much higher rate for what I would call the folks that are really keeping the economy moving every day. We're not the ones announcing 50,000 or 10,000 or 5,000 layoffs. We're just hanging on to our employees because we want their lives to be good and paying them well. And tax policy has a direct impact. I think Democrats for years, and I say this, you know, obviously being a Democrat, served in the Senate, sometimes don't understand when you hear about an LLC, an LP, a pass-through entity, how that works. They think it's all these shell games that people are playing because 
frankly, there are a lot of people that utilize that uh, in some ways. But the fact is, predominantly, those are small local businesses, family-owned, that built from the ground up. And I think Democrats have to get more educated about this. Your group is a great example of how to do that and bring them into these small businesses to help them understand it's not just making something or selling something. It's about this generational impact that these have. So I think um, I am hopeful. I mean, Trump did a good job in, you know, getting that, you know, get that 21% rate. And I think the president, uh, the current president Biden, is not a big fan of that necessarily because some of his supporters aren't. I think they might lean into more of, you know, millionaire, billionaire type taxes. But I worry because the knowledge base is different on the Democratic side and understanding it's not a bunch of doctors and lawyers and shell games. It's a lot of people when you walk down the street, you know, the, the restaurant you're going into is likely an LLC or an LP. And yet I think people don't understand that. And why should these hardworking folks pay a higher rate than the city corps? I think there's an education process, frankly. Yeah, I, I obviously we absolutely agree. And we have helped Congress to form this Congressional Family Business Caucus um, that Congressman Kingston knows well about because he's helped us with now 39 members, Democrats and Republicans. It's bipartisan educational to that very point. Yep. Um, but Congressman Kingston, I'm going to turn it over to you and, and, and ask you to comment on that question. Well, um, I think the tax package that is before the Senate right now will eventually pass. Um, it, it was negotiated between Ron White and Jason Smith, the House Ways and Means Chairman and the Senate Finance Chairman, and it was negotiated all year long. Uh, most people would change something or add something, but at the same time, they know this is probably as good as it's going to get. Um, member, some members wanted the child tax credit to be increased. Some people wanted other uh, extenders uh, to be put on it, but um, to get the bonus depreciation. I think in the R&D tax credit is something that bu the business community wants. Um, if it doesn't get done soon, though, uh, it's going to be perilously close to the April 15th because filing has already started. And once filing starts, uh, people, uh, it's just hard to change tax policy. But the other part, um, one of the things Mark mentioned is this is short term because next year, 2025, there's what we call the tax clip. That's when the Trump tax cuts expire. So then you are going to have a very large tax package. And businesses, family businesses in particular, have much uh, to fight over and, and a lot of great reasons to be involved. About 85% of the revenues for, to the federal government come from income taxes and payroll taxes. And the top 1% pay the majority of them. The top 10% pays anywhere from 35 to 40%, 42% of all those taxes. Now, in comparison, and I'm not trying to start class uh, finger pointing here, but the, the bottom 50% um, pays like 3% of the total tax, or less than 10% of the total, total taxes. Um, those numbers always change depending on who puts what in each category, but there's no question about it that in America, we have a progressive tax system. And those tax, that tax system, when it's passed through, falls on individuals to pay more than their fair share. 
Um, one of the things as a former businessman, um, I used to be an insurance broker in Savannah, Georgia. Um, I would always say to my friends, look, business people have to get involved in politics far more than they do. Um, the unions are out there. The teachers are out there. The nurses are out there. The trial lawyers are out there. But the business people, to their credit, they're out taking care of business, often 60 to 70 hours a week. But at the same time, that gives you a political disadvantage. And, and I always say, and Mark may agree, um, there's three C's to politics, and that's being a candidate, contributing to a candidate, or campaigning for a candidate. And what your group is doing, Pat, they're falling in there. They're campaigning. They're supporting candidates. They're rewarding good behavior, if you will. But good gosh, we need the whole business community to be doing what the family businesses are doing. And if I could add one quick thing on that, um, you know, when I was on the Board of Realtors for Alaska at Anchorage, um, one of the things that, and this is where Democrats get, I don't want to say agitated, but they get, they they have a a, a critical eye on businesses. You know, lots of times, I think the Board of Realtors at that time supported 90% of the Republicans, even though there were good Democrats supporting their policy. And when I got on the board, one of the things I said, hey, you know, you can have your other politics, but if you're talking about more realtors, in this case, family business, you got to support who supports you, no matter what the party is. Because when you do that, you get more legitimacy. Now, that does mean, and Jack will probably acknowledge this as I do, and that is, that means some of those members get some pressure from certain people saying, how dare you support a Democrat or a Republican, depending on the group. But my response was always, I support who supports the group I'm supporting and working on. In this case, if if you're a Democrat and you support the efforts you all are doing, then that's good. And the group should recognize that. Don't get caught up in the other politics of immigration or social policy and all that. That's not what you're about. You're about family business. And it's very difficult because today it's more of a toxic environment. You know, you're on the blue team or you're on the red team. And I think Jack and I would tell you, you know, it's better to be on your issue team and who supports your issues and then use the three C's, as Jack said. And that's where you participate to make sure they're aware and participate. I think that's a really uh, important point to make, because I was just going to ask you about one of the important issues for family businesses is hiring and retaining talent, you know, skilled labor, the training of that labor um, in addition providing the knowledge that they need to do their jobs. And in conjunction with that, immigration policy and how it may hinder family businesses from hiring the talent that they need to talent or recruit the, the talent that they need. And so I think what I'd like to hear from both of you is what do you think we can do as a country? And to your point, Senator, not necessarily a party, as a country that can help family businesses with uh, hiring, retaining, training uh, talent, and, and in conjunction with that, maybe a possible solution to our immigration policy that would help that. You know, that's a, well, your last part of it, the solution to immigration. Here, here's the, an example. I won't say which group it was, but there's a pretty big uh, industry group, and it was in a forum. And I, you know, they were talking about exactly what you talked about work short, workforce. Uh, shortages, employing people, training them, getting them into this new economy. And one of the comments was, well, we just need to retrain people. And I stood up and I said, that, that's that's great. Certain population must retrain. But the new generation, 
is not interested in working eight hours a day. They have valued quality of life over working all day long, all night long. They want to have quality. So you have to think of it from an employer standpoint, how are you going to change that shift and that that status of how you are employed? And I think federal government needs to think about that as they think about child care support, uh, workforce uh, health care, those kinds of things. But also like the immigration policy, the same group, when I brought this up, they, they were talking about all this. I said, great. Well, why don't you support immigration reform that brings workers in that we are not able to fill, not because we don't have the workforce. We have a population that is not really interested in certain types of jobs anymore. So, you know, when I grew up, kids would go work in the fish plants on the summertime. Well, a lot of the kids don't do that anymore. Okay, well, we got to figure that out. The response was very interesting. After all these other things they had talked about, they said, well, that's very controversial. And I said, well, yes, it is. That's why they were a business group. And I said, as a business group, you have a unique role to help shape the policy because you are firsthand knowledge. And sure enough, afterwards, a couple people came up to me and said, oh, yeah, I just signed a couple letters or to the immigration folks to try to get some people over for some technical. And I'm like, well, then you're part of this group. Help mm-hmm. create the environment that gives, you know, and I hate to say it this way, the political cover for the folks that are nervous about this issue. It's good politics. It's good for the economy. And we get into this, well, you're against the border wall or you're for the wall and all that. This is about a whole economy and we are in desperate need. I don't care if you're a two-person operation or a 50,000-person operation. The amount of workers that we need for every job there's, you know, for every type of job we have out there, we have our two jobs. We have one person kind of looking for that. So we got to rethink this, both how employers will work this, but also help people understand immigration is not, a, you know, a, a bad issue. There are some issues that need to be worked out, but it's only controversial, frankly, because two sides have made it controversial. And I've been in, two, when I got there in 09, we were on a verge of passing a significant bipartisan immigration bill fell apart because elections. And that's just not the way to do it. But I do think, again, we have to think of not the old way of doing it, right? You know, President Biden talks about apprenticeship and job training programs, which are great, but there's a new population of workers. It's not about retraining them. It's creating the environment that is conducive to their style and their lifestyle. And that's... Mm -hmm. Difficult because, you know, I worked in a job eight hours a day, five days a week, had to do overtime, work on a Saturday, work on a Sunday. The new population is not so interested in that. (laughs) Uh, They are a challenge. Um, (laughs) And and sometimes I wonder if Zoom and uh, Teams calls are a curse or a blessing, because I I can say this, Pat, even in a law firm, uh, some of the 25 year olds just don't want to come to work. And uh, when they don't, they are missing out on getting sage advice from Mark and me with our, our gray hair and our years of experience. <laughs> uh, but, Pat, uh, you know, I, I come from the, the rural area of Georgia. We work with the H2A program constantly. I've been to Salinas, California. If you're eating fresh, fruit and vegetables in America today, you can just about bet they were not picked by an American citizen. Um, Americans, as Mark said, have made a determination that we're not going to do certain jobs anymore. 
Um, I, I think it's too bad, but the reality is most of your fresh fruit products just um, to begin with on a farm were not picked by Americans. So you need to have an H2A type program, but it has to be strictly monitored as to who's coming in, where did they come from, how long are they going to stay, and when are they going to go back? And that's where I think the breakdown is uh, people feel like, oh, that's putting too much burden on the, the migrant worker, but I think it's also controls to keep the program alive. Then there's, you know, the H2B for higher skilled workers. And there's been a suspicion, well, you're giving these high level computer programming jobs to people um, who are making a hundred grand a year. Those jobs should be going to Americans, but there may not be enough Americans in particular niches to fill those slots. So I think that all of this could be worked out if not for the, the politics of it and one one side taking advantage of the other. Um, I wanted to say this. I heard the term the other day, ABODs, which stands for able body. Um, and, and there is a growing discu discussion about how many able-bodied Americans are not working anymore because of government programs. And what we saw because of COVID is a huge Washington-centered economy, even a Washington-driven economy. And a lot of that was COVID money, which in many cases ended up with people not working and certainly changing their work habits along the way. There again, family businesses need to be educating members of Congress and mem members of the state legislature. So here's how it actually works in the real world. Because I can tell you, elected officials are in a different world. Um, people often say, why can't politics, why can't Washington run like business? And the answer is, it's not a business. But it can do better for business if the business people are in, involved in the education and the election process. That's right. Yeah, well, go ahead, Senator. No, I say absolutely right. I think this is a, you know, part of business people, you know, they don't want to be involved in the politics because they're so busy running their businesses. But Business and politics or business and public policy intersect every day. I don't care if yes. they're running a retail store, an insurance store, or real estate development, whatever it might be, it all intersects. And the question is, how do you want to participate? Do you want to be in an adversary role where you're just kind of mad at them when suddenly a regulation comes down? Or do you want to work with each other to figure out what's the best policy to move your city, your state, or your country forward? Well, and at our next caucus meeting, uh, Congressional Family Business Caucus meeting, we actually have employees of family businesses coming and talking about these workforce issues. And to your point, what the family businesses now have a voice with this caucus. They now realize that they have to do just what both of you were saying. And I think they're making more of an effort. We have a long ways to go. But they are doing things that the government could help them with, like Training. I mean, we have a roofing company in Maine that's built their home whole training center and whole training institution because they couldn't get roofers. And now they built them within their own community. We have equipment dealers that couldn't get, you know, people to work on heavy machinery. And they tried to recruit outside the United States. To both your point, the immigration policies actually precluded them. They spent months and hundreds of thousands of dollars trying to build something within their organization that would allow them to do that. And because of the restrictions, they they weren't allowed to do that. They, they, they threw up their arms. But now, to both your points, they are now coming to D.C. because we've told them these are the stories that members of Congress need to hear. And I think, you know, 
hopefully, you know, both sides will get together and I think sounds minds will ultimately prevail. So I think it's a really, really important point um, because obviously workplace issues are so important as both of you pointed out today. I want to talk about an issue that is a difficult issue, but also very important to family business owners. And that is the concept of a wealth tax. Um, there's been a lot of discussion around wealth tax. Both of you have kind of addressed um, income taxes and, and other forms of taxes. But the fact is, if there is a wealth tax, it's possible that family businesses will be taxed on the value of their business themselves. So businesses will have to be valued, and it's possible that they would be paying a tax every year. And you all know that many family businesses are not liquid. So they may have a very valuable business, but they may not have much money in the bank. So it's something that concerns them a great deal. And I would just like to hear both of your comments on the, the possibility of a wealth tax. Senator, we'll start with you. Sure. I'll just first say, I think there's, you know, Senator Wyden's talked about kind of a billionaire tax or a high-end tax. I would start, we'll start first with the premise that I think uh, Congress and general Democrats specifically need to understand what wealthy is. If you tell me a couple making 40, uh, 400,000 a year is wealthy. They'll tell you something different if they're living in New York, Boston, BC, Chicago, go through the list, right? And have two kids and trying to go, you know, make a living. So we have to be first make sure the definition of what that is is very clear. You know, some use still 80,000 as the above that is wealthy. And I'm going to tell you in those urban cities, forget it. You're, you're not going to make it. Um, but the other thing, um, I do think there's probably, you know, that's why the 2025 tax conversation and debate is going to be critical, because I do think there are more Democrats, especially on the Senate side, that support some sort of billionaire tax or high-end tax. Now, the taxing of assets, frankly, I'll be so blunt about it, is a stupid idea uh, for all the reasons you just said, Pat, and that is, I know a lot of small business and I, I'm one of them too. You know, you, you invest, you know, you put it all back in and then it's selling the value of your property goes up. You get taxed. Not only your local government's taxing already on property taxes and other things. Now the federal government's going to say, well, yeah, it's appreciated. We're going to tax you on that, but you have not realized any gain. It doesn't make any sense because then, you know, frankly, from the federal government side, very short-term thinking, what happens if the values go down? How is the federal government going to treat that? Example, in Alaska during, I can name the crashes that have occurred, but one specifically, a condos, a starter home condos were about 80 grand. When the crash occurred, they went to 12,000. Well, how does that work? And so that idea, that concept doesn't make any sense. I understand economy is booming. They want to capture all this wealth. Well, if you're income-based or sales tax-based, right, if you're buying goods and so forth, that's based on what's happening in the economy, wages, sales. But a real estate or a mark-to-market type of thing doesn't make any sense. I mean, because if you're a small business, then what you're going to do, you're going to restrict your growth in a time that you're growing because you got to save the money to pay for phantom growth because, as you know, I'll just use real estate. It may be on the books X, but when you go to market to sell it for conditions that may be there or not, 
maybe the price is less, right? So it's not yep. as clear cut as, and then I can't even imagine the bureaucracy to keep track of that. Does that mean as a small business, I got to get valuations done on all my properties, all my bi- and business valuations yeah. are not easy. You know, a lot of people don't want to do them because they're subjective to some degree with goodwill and other things. So how do you deal with that? I mean, I'm still yeah. struggling this year with the new 1099s that seem to be like a leaflet program coming through my door here. Every day I see new ones because the limit's $600 and it's, it's like, it's, and I would love to ask IRS one day, how do you actually use these? And because I, I, I got stacks of them here, which of course, you know, it is the process, but I do think that it's a dumb idea. I tell Democrats this all the time when they start thinking about that idea. I say, that is just ridiculous. Live in the real world. You'll see why it doesn't work. Sorry. I was a little, Pat, that's what I, I followed quite a bit. Cause I think it's just, I don't know who came up with this idea, but, um, I'll leave it at that. Sorry, Jack, I got going there. <laughs> no, hey, Mark, you, I think you've explained it great. I can't imagine um, in a $24 trillion uh, GDP economy, I can't imagine the federal government being able to accurately monitor this. Can you imagine if they say that you're building this, like uh, that court case against Trump right now, where the the, the New York DA is saying that Mar-a-Lago is worth $18 million. I mean, it, it's... I don't know that much about Florida real estate, but I am sure that that number is not accurate. And I, and I know what I don't know, but the government, with all their lawyers and with all their money coming after you to tell you that your building is worth X when you're saying it's worth Y, uh, the, the um, number of IRS agents that would be needed to do this would just be absurd. However, let me say this, absurd never stops the U.S. Congress from passing laws. So, you, you know, you got to you have to be engaged. And again, Pat, I'm not here to even though I would, but I'm not here to plug the the family and taxation group. But what you're doing for the family businesses across America is profound, because I will say that there has been a little bit of a distrust with some of the traditional business advocacy groups in Washington. They don't have the big political stick that they used to. And so for family businesses to get involved in it, very, very important. Um, Mark mentioned Mark to Market. Uh, We looked at that uh, when Bush was president and it caused an economic disaster. Um, I had in my area family farms who hadn't hadn't had their value turned over, hadn't had the ownership turned over for a hundred years. They'd been in the same family, just different generations. How could you possibly be able to price what that's worth when there hasn't been a sale? And if, I mean, several counties with no land has been sold in you know fifty to sixty years, that so the government's going to come in there and tell you what it's worth. It, it's just absurd. Yeah. So I really appreciate your input today. I'm going to ask if either of you have any final comments or maybe words of wisdom for our family business owners. Pat, I'll just say first, thank you for this opportunity and to your organization. I, I love the fact that you have a caucus now within the Congress. That's important to be there, have a voice in getting congressional people on both sides of the aisle and both bodies really educated on this and what it means. And so I, I would just encourage your members who are listening or viewing this that they, in, in even in their busy lives, they got to find a little time. And Think about what's important and then deliver the message in a very personal, 
direct way. So they so congressional people do respond. They they love data, they love information, but they respond to real stories about the impacts of the policies they're about to make. Those have profound impacts. So again, thank you very much. It's always a pleasure to talk with you and your group. And I think you're doing a heck of a job to keep people aware of what, what's going on out there. Well, thank you so much for that. You're very kind. And Pat, let, let me just close with this, not to introduce a new topic because it's very similar, but just remember as frustrating as it is when Congress passes a law, for every one law that they pass, there's 24 new regulations that come <laughs> along with it. The federal registry now is up to uh, 82,000 pages. Regulatory compliance costs the government about four, about $2 billion a year, so $2 trillion, excuse me, $2 trillion. Um, that's how much the government spends to keep an eye on us. So um, there's a lot to be fixed. There's a lot of reason to get involved. Uh, pick the candidate near you. Um, this time next year, Mark and I want to have a pop quiz. We're going to ask all your members if they have a yard sign in their yard, Russ. And if they if they don't, we're going like to say it. shame on you. But get involved. Pick a candidate who agrees with our issues and, and uh, uh, give them some sweat equity and a check. There we go. So thank you so much, Senator Baggage. Thank you so much, Congressman Kingston. Really appreciate your insights. This has been, as I knew it would be, a very lively and interesting discussion. So once again, thank you for your time. Thank you. Thanks a lot. So we hope you liked today's show. And if you did, please subscribe to our podcast. Each episode discusses the critical issues affecting generationally owned family businesses and family offices around the country. You'll find this podcast wherever you download your podcast. Until next time, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to this week's Family Enterprise USA podcast. This is the only series devoted exclusively to the critical issues facing America's family businesses, the families that own them, and the clients of family offices. We hope you liked this episode. Please make sure to subscribe and tell others about our podcast. Having your voice heard in Washington, D.C. and throughout the country can make a difference. We look forward to having you listen in next time.